good morning. Uh, we asked this question a few weeks ago when we started this sermon series in First Thessalonians. How is it you know that you're a Christian? How is it you know that you're a Christian? And we look back, if you can look over there, chapter 1, verse 4, we find that you can know. Some people might say, well, you can't really know. Paul evidently shows there that you can know if you're actually in Christ. He then goes on to explain in chapter 1 how conversion works, and he summarizes that in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, when he says that you turn from idols to the living and the true God by believing in the gospel, that is, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ for your sin. And you wait upon his return. Turn from idols, believe in the gospel, trust in Christ. And if you were here during that time, you might recall that we noted the fact that Jesus taught um, that there would be all kinds of people that would have understood themselves to have done that, but didn't. But have understood themselves to think that they're Christians and trust that they had been in some ways converted, but in actuality never really did. In other words, when the end came, they were surprised to find out that they were never safe in Christ. They stood under the judgment of God. I grew up in the South. I trust there's probably a lot of people like that down there. The way in which we can be sure of our being in Christ, safe as we see in our passage today, from God's coming wrath against sin and unrighteousness, the way in which we can be sure is by evaluating what gospel we believe and then the fruit of the belief of that gospel. That's how we can know. Which gospel do we believe and any fruit from that gospel? In the Thessalonians, for instance, Paul is rejoicing in this local church. So it's so important to remember that in an individualistic society, we tend to lose sight of the fact that so much of the Bible is written to local churches. So this is all the U's are in the plural form. So he's writing to this church in Thessalonica, and he's full of joy because amidst their own affliction for believing this gospel, they are receiving the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit, making that gospel known to others. In other words, they're proving to be authentic Christians. And then in chapter 2, he then kind of defends the authenticity of his own ministry. Charges had been leveled against him. And he says, he comes back and says, I didn't try to get your money. I didn't try to get your glory. I just tried to love you and teach you the Bible. And uh, the thing that he lands on, he then comes out of defending his ministry in here in our passage, verse 13 to 16, he then comes back to the evidence for the authenticity of this church's true faith in Christ. And the thing that he's going to point to, that they, not, that they received the word of God as the word of God, and then they suffered for that word without wavering. And this is the fruit of authentic Christianity. That's what we'll think about this morning. Take a look. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses 9 down to 16. Paul says, For you remember, brothers... Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Authentic Christianity, friends, receives the gospel of God and suffers for the gospel of God. That's what we're going to see. First point this morning is a charge. Receive God's word as God's word. 
Receive God's word as God's word, not man's words, just about God. Receive God's word as God's word. Now, what we see here is Paul thanks God for this new church's receiving their preaching of the gospel as though it came from man, not from man, I should say, not from man, but as what it really is. Circle those words, is. What it really is, it comes from God. They received it that way. They received Paul, Silvanus, Timothy's preaching and teaching about the gospel as though it were what it is, God's word. Now, friends, I don't know if you've ever had anyone tell you that the authors of the Bible never actually believed or knew that they were speaking or writing the words of God. Well, clearly, as evidenced by this passage, it's true that they knew exactly that they were teaching God's words. It was very conscious to them. Along with the other 12 disciples, these apostles watched the ministry of Christ, Christ up close. They were taught by Christ up close. And they were commissioned by Christ himself to be the witnesses of the truth about God. And so Paul, along with the other disciples, spread the gospel by preaching it and writing it conscious of their God-given authoritative word. And that's why Paul finishes the letter, by the way. If you look back, just flip over to the end of this letter, you'll see that's why he commands this letter to be read to everybody. He puts them under oath to do that. The 27 books of the New Testament were all either written by the apostles directly or the disciples of those apostles, which explains why the churches of Christ that believe the true gospel received the New Testament books as what they were, the Word of God. And they didn't receive other letters or other books. So, for instance, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul himself writes in another place, writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14.37-38. He writes, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. They knew that they were speaking and writing the Word of God. And so also we should note, we should not understand that the, through, the, through the translations of Scriptures over the course of years that the Word of God has been lost. Because of this reality, because the translators of scriptures understood that they were writing and translating the word of God as though it was from God. So they were careful. They were precise. And so let's not say some sort of straw man that would accuse us of saying that the translation of scripture is the same thing as the telephone game. Friend, that is simply a straw man that is no way true. They are careful and precise because they understood this to be the Word of God. Paul knew he was preaching and writing the Word of God. And he knew the Christians in the church of the Thessalonians. He knew that they were in Christ in part because they received the Word of God as the Word of God. Not just some words that men kind of conjured up about God. That's one of the ways in which he knew that they were in Christ is because as the word went forth, he saw that they received it as though it was from God. And this is significant to note because we might be led to believe that first century peoples like these guys were in some ways different from us insofar as they were not tempted as we are today in the 21st century to believe the words of God. In other words, uh, we might be led to believe that somehow those first century people, it was easier for them to take the Bible as though it was from God. And it's harder for us today because, you know, we're more sophisticated scientific people. Well, clearly that's not the case. Since Paul is going out of his way to show us that he's thanking God that they received it as such. They too, in the first century, had the same temptations that we do. They too were surrounded with all kinds of man's words about God. But evidently, these Christians in Thessalonica, this church, was able to distinguish between the truth from lies. And so, friends, let's not be tempted by some kind of chronological snobbery to think that somehow they had different temptations than us today. And friends, they were tempted to be deceived by the truth about God just as much as we are. And yet Paul thinks that amidst those temptations, they receive the word of God as though it were from God. These were not just some Man's words, ruminations about God. And the reality is we are inundated 
with man's words every day, aren't we? When it comes to man's words that kind of conjure up about God, we are overwhelmed, just as they were, with deception and error and impurity. Which explains, again, chapter the context, chapter 2, verses 1 down to 12, which explains why Paul had to defend his authority and the purity of his message. So, too, do leaders still have to do that today. And this is why, friends, it is so critical, so critical to find a church that not only says that they submit to the Word of God, but they actually are endeavoring to do that in practice as evidenced by their teaching and practicing all of God's Word, especially in the places where it's not culturally celebrated. Look for churches like that. If you choose churches, in other words, that are based upon the music that you like or the personality of the pastor or the size of the congregation, friend, you're placing yourself in a very dangerous place. Because personal preferences about worship, which we all have, myself included, when they become more important than the worship of God and the reception of all of the truth of God's word, well, again, you place yourself in a dangerous place because your personal preferences become more important than the clear teaching of God's word to feed your souls, to orient you in this world. The cancer patient does not evaluate a doctor's clothing or personality as the final measure of their trust. Right? No, the most important thing for the cancer patient is will the doctor prescribe and administer the right medicine? No matter what is going on. And so when it comes to evaluating churches, if you truly love Jesus, you'll find a church that will carefully and compassionately and faithfully preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Especially again in places of cultural compromise or personal temptation. Authentic Christianity receives the gospel of God as the word of God. As evidenced by your then joining churches that don't obscure, that don't hide, that don't diminish the straightforward preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Receiving it as though it were all from God. And not only receiving it in the sense that you say, yes, 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 that's true. But as Paul says back in chapter 1 verse 7, receiving it with joyful hearts. Because you recognize this is clear-eyed preaching and teaching from God. He's giving us revelation to help us understand what's true and what's not true. Receiving it with joyful hearts. Not like tacitly, like, oh, okay, I guess it's true. So church family, we are living in strange and difficult days, right? We're living in strange and difficult days. It's easy to think that the days that we are facing are new. Friends, we should also recognize that virtually every generation could say that they were living in strange and difficult days. But it is true that we are seeing challenges that are not new, but certainly unique. And one of the ways that we can be sure that we're in Christ and not being deceived is by our not just believing, but joyfully receiving the words of God, all of them. Joyfully amidst the affliction of we believe those words, not succumbing to the cultural pressures and trying to find ways to kind of have feet in both worlds, not trying to compromise, yet maintaining our interests by joyfully hearing God's word combat man's words about gender and sexuality, about ethnicity, about greed. Clearly, faithfully, compassionately sitting under, joyfully receiving God's word about all of these things and letting that, God's word, then speak into the world in which we live. This is what authentic Christianity does, as the Thessalonians did. It rejects books and articles and podcasts and churches and conversations that are trying to contort God's word to fit into the mold of man's moment. Instead, we receive it, God's word, for what it really is. God's words to man, not man's words conjured up about God that keep changing with each cultural shifting wind. And of course, to do this, guys, it takes a lot of prayerfulness, it takes a lot of carefulness, it takes a lot of humility, it takes a lot of courage, but it must be done if we're going to endure. And so, this is important too, we should give thanks to God for the faithful reception of God's word as God's word. Look again at the words of Paul. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. And he goes on. Constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. 
not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Friends, it's not enough to believe the Word of God as the Word of God. Remember, the demons believe that and shudder, James tells us. We believe it joyfully because we know it comes to us by the grace of God. One of the ways you know that you're in Christ is you not only believe the word, but you joyfully receive the word. And you recognize that you receive the word joyfully and you receive it because you know it came from God. God did that. Paul doesn't say that he thanks the Thessalonians for their believing the word of God for what it is. That's not what he says. He says he thanks God for their reception of the truth. Meaning, it was God that gave them eyes to see and ears to hear. Remember the story? Remember the story of Peter when he gets the right confession of the gospel, right? And Jesus says of Peter in Matthew 16, It was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you. It was God that revealed this to you. God gives us eyes to see. God gives us ears to hear. God gives us hearts to open up, to see and hear and joyfully receive and follow those words. God does that. That's what Paul's doing. He thanks God constantly for the fact that happened to those Thessalonians. Now, maybe some of you are here this morning and you thought that we Christians were arrogant for believing that somehow we had a corner on the truth. Maybe you thought that before. All you Christians, because you think Jesus is the only way to heaven, you guys are so arrogant to believe that. Well, two things, friends, if that's you. First, you should know that everyone is narrow-minded about the truth. We all are exclusive. Whether you believe there is no truth or that no one can know the truth or that you have the truth, everybody is making an authoritative claim. But second... As we see here, Christians don't receive the Word of God as the Word of God because we're really smart. I'm the dumbest guy in this room, I promise you. I'm not doing this because I sort of sat down and sort of studied a bunch and I went to school and I kind of thought about it and went to philosophy class and figured it out. It's not what happened. It's the exact opposite. It's a unique claim, friend, about the Christian faith. Christians uniquely believe that is that we by nature are dead sinful, unable to arrive at the knowledge of the truth of God apart from the saving grace of God to expose us to the truth. That's a unique thing about Christianity. In other words, unlike every other religion on planet earth, we admit we cannot save ourselves by our good works, by our religiosity, or by our intellect trying to figure it out. We don't believe that. We are the only ones on planet earth that believe that we are helpless, helpless, that God had to save us and that he did and that he gave us eyes to see and ears to hear, which is why, by the way, Christians sing and other religions don't because we have so much to be thankful for because we didn't do anything. God did it all. So we are joyful people, even amidst suffering, because we know we are fools and God gave us the right to see and to hear the truth and the gospel. To awaken us to it. And to be adopted into God's family. By grace. Through faith in Christ. Who gave us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel. John says this so clearly in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him. This is whoever it is that's really a Christian. But to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave. That's God. He gave the right to become children of God. We didn't earn the right. He gave it to become the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. In other words, we didn't get born into the family because of who our parents were, nor the will of the flesh. In other words, not by me willing myself to do good things, nor the will of man. That is not by me figuring it out, reading a bunch of books, but of God. Our hearing the truth about the gospel and believing it is God's work by grace in our lives. That's why Paul says he thanks not the Thessalonians, though he's thankful for them. He thanks God constantly for the church in Thessalonica receiving the word of God as the word of God. God gave the right. God opened our selfish, dumb and deaf and dumb ears to hear the gospel and believe it. He did it by his grace and mercy. Therefore, we should constantly thank him for it. That he opened and opens our ears to hear and joyfully Receive the gospel. This, friends, is evidence of authentic Christianity. The last thing on this point. Restoration Church, if you've ever wondered where the miracles of God are today, 
That is, if you've ever wondered if you really believe the gospel or one another way, you're evaluating that you're in Christ. One thing you can look at is like, where's all the where's all the kind of crazy stuff that we read about in the Bible? Well, just take a look around, friend. There's 157 members of this church. That's 157 people that it seems as though God miraculously opened your eyes and ears to receive the gospel. That didn't happen by you. So any person in this room right now, even if it was just one person taking this feeble sermon, listening to it, going, yes, hallelujah, I hear and believe the gospel. It's true. I love it. Thank you for reminding me that God did that. If that's you right now, God did that. The Holy Spirit literally did that. It's amazing. Evidence of God's saving, miraculous work. Every single Sunday when we come in here, right? This is one of the reasons, by the way, Protestant churches have a pulpit at the center of their churches. Because we believe it is by the Word of God that we can hear and be saved. It's at the center. The Word is at the center. And every Sunday we come in here, right? And we hear the Word and we receive it joyfully. Some don't. This is worth noting. This is worth giving thanks to God for. That God, Sunday after Sunday, and then in your own lives, when you're reading it personally, the Bible, speaking it to others in your homes and in your neighborhoods, and as you take walks in the coffee houses, as you speak that to others outside of this gathering and receive that, and you hear it joyfully and say, that's true, I want to walk in that. That's God's work. Give God thanks for it. And so towards that end, This week, the way I was personally responding to the study of this passage was just thanking God that he gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. That would be a good thing for you to do in the silence of this moment. God, thank you. You gave me ears to hear. And even right now in this moment, I'm hearing this going, yes, it's true. Thank you, God. Thank him for it. This is the word of God. And notice, again, those words. And it is having its work. Look at the first verse, in verse 13. Which is at work in you believers. And so, therefore, it is having work in us. Right? The ladies are down there studying the fear of the Lord this morning. We're doing it right now. We're singing it. We're praying it. Community groups this afternoon, rest of the week, we're going to be doing it. It is at work in you. It's changing you. Think about how you were, right? This is one of my favorite ministries in discipling. I go up to you, and you're like, ah, you know, I'm struggling with this. I'm terrible, whatever. Like, or, well, listen, brother. How would you make that decision five years ago? Yeah, you're right. I guess I've come a ways. Yeah, right? As we see increasingly give ourselves over to the teaching of the word, we can see God is changing us. It is at work in us. If you're wondering, is anything happening, right? Joey knows. This is, I go through this about three times a year when I walk around the halls of this building and I'll go, I don't know if anything's happening. I just feel like I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm counseling, nothing's happening. Well, shut up, Nathan. It is happening, Right? Just be aware of that. Be thankful to God for that. It is at work in us. And the easiest way to see that is by realizing that amidst all the deceptive words we are being fed through in different outlets outside, we still stand on the gospel. That's the way we can know. Gladly receiving the truth and endeavoring to walk in it together because we believe it is from God. It is working. And what God has begun, beloved, he will bring to completion. So Restoration Church, be thankful to God for your salvation, for your love for Jesus. Be thankful to God for churches like this one all over the world that are preaching and endeavoring to get up underneath Jesus' words. Be thankful to those churches and those ministries. And also maybe for some of you that are here this morning, you're realizing, I've been fighting God's word. I have not believed God's word. I've been doubting it in all, interestingly, in all the places where it would call me to compromise the world's celebrations. I'm finding that I want to not believe those words, and I'm realizing that. If that's you, if you're realizing this morning, I need the true gospel, well, let me give it to you. Here it is. God is holy, perfect, and pure, and blameless, and we're not. And we deserve God's just wrath. Every single one of us. I do, you do. We have nothing that we have done to earn his favor. We deserve his wrath. We deserve hell. And God in his infinite kindness sent his son into the world. So as to rescue you out of your own enslavement to yourself, to, those, to the words of man, to, your, to the words of yourself, to rescue you out of that. 
He did that by sending his son who was fully God, fully man, who lived uniquely a sinless life. And therefore, his death on the cross is able to save those that repent and believe upon him. His life, he will take your sin and the wrath that should fall upon you falls upon him at the cross. And then those that believe his righteousness gets transferred to the believer such that they are counted, credited to them as righteousness. And we know that that payment for sin is received because he raises three days later. And now he ascended and sits at the right hand interceding on behalf of those that love and trust him. So that you can be saved, so you can be forgiven and brought into his righteousness. That's the good news. And if you're hearing that this morning, saying, yes, I want that, give thanks to God. And then come tell somebody about it. But you should know a second thing as you receive that word. You should receive the word of God as the word of God, not man's words about God. But secondly, you should also imitate Receive it, then imitate Christ and his church by suffering for that gospel. Imitate Christ and his church by suffering for that gospel. Take a look down at the first word in verse 14, 4. Now what Paul's about to do here is what Paul is about to do is to demonstrate that Thessalonian church is receiving the word of God as the word of God. What he's going to do is give evidence of their evident reception of the word of God as the word of God as evidence by their suffering for that word. Not changing the word, but staying in that word and suffering as a result. Look at he says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, that would have been Gentiles, as from the Jews. Suffering for the word of Christ, that's normal in the Christian life. I can remember a sermon from a pastor that spoke at a very, as he called it, posh seminary. I've been to the seminary. It's not the one I went to, but it's true. It's pretty posh. The one I went to, it's pretty posh. He called that place dangerous. Because, he said, everything is so nice. He said, he went on because a little riff. People dress nice. The chapel's nice. The air conditioning is nice. The drapes are nice. The food are nice. And he said, if you get used to this niceness, you'll be useless because you'll never want to go to North Africa or someplace else that's hard. Because, he says, you've gotten so used to things being so nice and comfortable. And then he concluded with that word from Jesus. It's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. Friends, it's easy to become, it's, it's become easy in America to forget that the shape of the Christian life is in the form of a cross. That's our symbol, an execution device. It was through the cross of Christ and his suffering that we gained our victory. As Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Paul commends the church in Thessalonica as authentic, as true, because they received the word of God as though it was, as it was the word of God, as evidenced by the fact that they suffered for that word just like the other true churches. They didn't bend. They didn't conform to the patterns of the world around them. Instead, they were changed by that word such that now their own countrymen hate them, malign them, mock them, beat them, threaten them because they don't like these new people. They don't like this gospel. They don't like the words of that God. Friends, the world is always trying to press us into its mold. There's never been a time in America or any other country where it was great. Never. It's always been costly to follow the Lord, always. And it always will be until Jesus returns and heaven comes to earth. More on that in a moment. But you know that you're truly in Christ or to stay inside of the context of 1 Thessalonians, which is written to a church. You know your church is a true church when that people is changed by the, by, by the word such that those words they follow cost them Because the world around them doesn't follow those words. That's how you can know. But instead, that church, they stay the line because, in the words of Peter, where else would they go? Jesus says the words of eternal life. 
We remember here our sister Ruth from the Old Testament. Remember her story? She, a woman from outside the land, had married along with her another Orpah and Naomi. All three of their husbands had died. Orpah goes back home to her kind of foreign land, follow her foreign gods. Naomi, the mother, pleaded with Ruth to just go back and do the same. And Ruth said back to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And Ruth's whole life changed as a result. It wasn't easy on her. She lived in a new place with new people and she followed a new to her but true God. And everything changed. And because Ruth did, she got grafted into the story of Christ himself. She was the grandmother, as it were, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself. Christian, that's our story. We turn from idols and follow Christ as Lord, not ourselves. The world around us and its patterns is not Lord. Christ is. And the shape of Christ's life was one of suffering. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, blessed, blessed. Do you want to be blessed this morning? Say in yourself. Do you want to be blessed this morning? Just say to yourself, if your answer is yes, okay, let me read the rest of this word. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You're going to be, you're going to be accused of things falsely. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beloved, it is my assumption, and I believe it ought to be all of our assumptions, that following Jesus by following his word will increasingly cost us something more in the days ahead. I don't know what that is. I don't pretend to know what that is. I don't pretend to know what front that is. But I assume it's coming or it hasn't come already. We may take a hit financially. We may take a hit socially. We, make a, we may take a hit numerically as a church. Maybe we'll take a hit physically. I don't know. Maybe all of these things. But we had better decide now while the sun is still shining that Jesus' words are worth it. Better make that decision now. We had better receive, that is, the word of God and the word of his gospel. Receive those words now while the sun is still shining. That word, which, by the way, is colored with blood. And say that we're willing to follow that word. Resolve now that we will, like the Thessalonians, imitate Christ and the churches of God in Christ that have for two millennia suffered for the gospel. What's going on in Afghanistan in the church is way more normal than what's going on here. We've been largely shielded from that over the past couple hundred years. But that safety seems to be fading and with it are coming two things. One, the clarification of where the true churches really are as evidenced by their continuing to follow the straightforward teaching of the Word of God that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Not trying to change it and sort of shove that one aside so I don't have to follow it. But also a clarification of where the false churches are. So this moment is producing where are the true ones, where are the false ones. Making, it's making that more clear. Ones that actually believe the word of God and receiving the word of God as the word of God. Those that believe the true gospel and follow all of its words. Those that, as Jude says, contend for the faith. It was once and for all handed down to the saints. Look at the passage again. You have both Jews and Gentiles coming at gospel-loving people. Fellow countrymen and Jews. They killed our Lord Jesus. They killed the prophets. They drove out the apostles And in doing this, these are huge words. And in doing this, they displease God and oppose all mankind. There's only two sides, guys. Jesus says there's two roads. Jesus says there's two kinds, sheep and goats. Which one will you be? There's no third option here. Will we conform to the patterns of the world and displease God by compromising and trying to find a way to fit in? 
Or will we conform to the patterns of heaven and so along the way displease man? The choice, I pray, is one we've already made. For the members of this church, I trust that we've already made that, right? When we, when we said those statement of beliefs and that church government, that was us saying, that's true, that's truth, and I want to come up underneath that. But more than that, we've got to continue to daily come up under that word, under that Jesus, growing our love and trust for him. Because when things get tough, it's going to be really easy to peace out or find a way to compromise and fit in. Authentic Christianity receives the gospel of God and suffers for the gospel of God. And kids, let me speak to you. Don't lose sight of this part of the gospel. The church I grew up in was helpful in a lot of ways, but they didn't really teach me this. And it's on every page of the Bible. Kids, you need to know that. Jesus says to count the cost. If I was in a five, group of five-year-olds and said, who wants to follow Jesus? I'd say, Yay, right? But then, okay, you're going to have to suffer. You in it now? So kids, this church, I want to love you by telling you that there's a cost to following Jesus in the same way that there was a cost to Christ following his own word. I tell my sons that following the joy, following Christ is one of the greatest joys of my life. But I also tell my kids that it's costly. And so girls, from small to the great, it will cost you to follow Jesus. From simple things like dressing modestly People making fun of you, maybe. To harder things like not hanging out with friends or going to events or dating men that are not following Christ that you may like a lot. In order to follow Jesus, we have to learn to say no to some things and yes to some things. And in that, it may cost you. You need to know that. And boys, guys, from simple things like not letting athletics or the desire for money or women lead us away to significant things like standing in front of a bully or speaking up to a professor that's speaking lies. It's costly, but it's worth it. I could give you a million reasons why it's worth it. I'm going to give you two. First, because it is the way of Christ that you are led into a kingdom and a glory that will never fade. That's the first reason why it's worth it to follow Jesus and take the suffering that comes with following that word. Because it's the way of Christ that you are led into a kingdom and a glory that will never fade. Look back up to verse 12. That's the verse that's leading into these verses. Paul says that for those who the Lord draws, again, once again, it's not man, it's the Lord that draws them to himself. For those who the Lord draws to himself, he is calling, present active, calling you into his kingdom and his glory. Friends, this world, kids, this world is going to lead you to believe that you can fashion a kingdom and a glory of your own that is better than Jesus's. If you go to the right schools, this is what it's going to tell you. doesn't mean these things are bad in and of themselves, but this world's going to try to tell you, listen, if you go to the right schools, if you believe whatever's trending, if you wear the right clothes, have the right friends, date the right people, make the right money, you'll arrive and you'll have a kingdom and a glory that will never fade. And if you believe that or you hear other people trying to get you to believe that, ask them one very simple question. How's that going? How's that going? Friends, we live in one of the most wealthy nations in the history of the world. We have more safety than any nation has ever known in the history of the world. And yet we're incredibly fearful. We have more freedom to believe whatever it is we want to believe than any other civilization in the history of the world. And how's it going? In believing our own kingdom and our own glory, kind of constructing it our own. Look at any external measuring stick. You don't have to look at the Christian ones. Just look at any external measuring stick. And what we find is, friends, suicide, depression, drug and alcohol abuse, loneliness, fear, anxiety, all on the rise at historical levels. That's where we are. In other words, when we ask the question, how's it going? It's not working. It's not working. And it never will. Because it wasn't designed to. But you know what kingdom and glory is working? Christ's is. His word has been attacked a million times over. And it has still stood strong against every attack. Its truthfulness is undiminished. Nations have risen and fallen, and yet his church stands and continues to thrive. And every nation 
And you want to know why? How is the church able to, as Jesus promised, my church will advance? How is it able to do that? Because no weapon formed against him will stand. That's why. Jesus said, do not fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can fear, that can destroy the body and soul in hell. And that's what Jesus has. Only he has authority over body and soul. Only he is the one that is over heaven and earth. Therefore, his kingdom and glory will never fade, but only increase. Which is why Paul could say, to live is Christ and die is what? Gain. Yeah. They can even crucify our Lord. Put him on a cross, kill him and make fun of him. And God will use that to advance his glory. The darker the hour, the brighter the gospel shines. The deeper the sorrow, the stronger the joy that comes in the morning. The worse the sin, the greater the grace. The lower the valley, the higher the glory that comes on that mountain. And we will get to that mountain, beloved. He promised us we will. And he's not given up on any promises yet. He's fulfilled them all. And we'll get to that mountain, beloved, not because of our own strength and glory. Amen? But because of his. His strength. His glory. He's the king, not us. His glory, not our glory. He is calling us into a kingdom and a glory that never fades because it has existed before time. God's self-sufficiency ensures that because he needs nothing. God doesn't need money. He doesn't need fame. He doesn't need power. doesn't need numbers. All he needs is himself. This existed outside of time. Father, Son, and Spirit working together to beautify the bride of the Son. He is calling us, church family, into his kingdom and his glory, which will never fade. Live for that kingdom. Be willing to suffer for it. It's worth it to receive the word of the gospel and suffer for that gospel as we stand to gain a kingdom and glory that unlike the world will never fade. But I told you there's two reasons that following Jesus is worth it. Two reasons that it's worth it suffering for. Here's the second reason. Third division point of the sermon. Final one. I'll finish here. Second reason it's worth it to follow Jesus and even suffer for that word is because God will judge all the enemies of the gospel. God will judge all the enemies of the gospel. That's where Paul lands his argument. Look at verse 16. You can see it there. Both the Jews and the fellow countrymen that persecute the church, that kill Jesus, that kill the prophets, that drive missionaries out, they displease God and they oppose all mankind for the ways they obscure or try to hinder the preaching of the gospel. Paul says there that they fill up the measure of their sins in their so doing. So, friends, if you're trying to stop the spread of the gospel in any way, you displease God and oppose mankind because by stopping that spread, you're stopping the medicine of the gospel to get and save people. And so, therefore, God says that will fill up his wrath. That's what Paul says. There's something about the proclamation of the gospel and the suffering that comes as a result that fills the cup of God's wrath. Such that the more that that sort of persecution comes to the spread of the gospel, the more that it comes, the more it fills up the cup of God's wrath till eventually it spills over onto those that harm the gospel. Friend, when you pick a fight with the church and its gospel, you pick a fight with Jesus. And nobody knew that better than Paul himself, who did that very thing. And like the cross, the more that you threaten, the more that you malign, the more that you uh, try to charge the gospel and the gospel people, the more that you threaten the wife of Christ, the church, for believing the truth, the more you anger her husband, Jesus. The one that, by the way, is over all and above all. And if a broken man like me can get angry, When you try to pick on my wife, how much more do you think Jesus gets upset when people try to pick on his gospel and his wife? No one, no one gets away with how the gospel and the church of that gospel is treated. It all either gets judged in one of two places. One, it gets judged either for those that repent of that sin, repent for the ways that they've harmed Christ and his gospel, By trusting in Jesus, take away that sin, it gets dealt with there. God puts that wrath of your sin for harming Christ on Jesus at the cross. Or, that's one place he gets judged, and you're forgiven of that by grace. Or secondly, you're left to pay for it. That nation's left to pay for it. That group of people's left to pay for it themselves. 
Nobody gets away with it. It all gets judged. And you'll notice, look at the verse, verse 16. You'll notice in this passage, Paul says, but wrath has come upon them at last. The them there is the enemies of the gospel, Jew or Gentile. Yes, he's emphasizing Jew, but he always also is referencing the countrymen. It has come upon them, these enemies. And this could refer to something that may have recently happened historically, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. More than likely, Paul is referencing the wrath that is the judgment of unbelief as evidenced by the killing and the driving out of the gospel-loving people. That in and of itself, that hatred of the gospel and that trying to stop it, that in and of itself is judgment, wrath upon them. For those like the Jews and the fellow countrymen of the Thessalonians that obscure the gospel, that hinder its spread, they authenticate their hatred of God and therefore like any criminal act, it gets dealt with. And God's judgment is always right. This would have given, by the way, if you're sitting here thinking like, oh, this is kind of harsh, try to think about how this would have landed on the Thessalonians. How do you think this made them feel? They, by the way, had been going through tons of affliction. They would have read that line right there and they would have been, thank you. They would have been given great comfort. This Thessalonian church would have been great government that amidst their afflictions, their love for the gospel to stay the course, they would have been comforted. On the, on the one hand, their ongoing love and trust of the gospel would encourage them. They would go, all right, we're suffering for this and we're staying the line. I'm real. We're real. Thanks be to God. We're real. And then secondly, they would have comforted them to know, and those dudes that are giving it to us and we're not punching back, God's going to avenge them. We're not going to do it. God's going to do it. That would have comforted them. And so therefore to confuse, to contort, to obscure, to deceive, to lie, to threaten, to minimize the gospel and its spread is to displease God and is to make yourself an enemy of all of humanity because you keep from them the medicine that was meant to save them. And God will bring wrath upon that, judgment upon that. And that judgment when it comes will come Apparently it has come in one sense, it is coming, and it will come fully and finally at the return of Christ. And so this is the second reason following Christ is worth it, because he will fully and finally judge those that oppose him. And while you might be Christians today, while we might be judged by family or friends or neighbors or governments, you will never be judged like Christ will judge those that oppose him in the spread of his gospel, whether Jew or Gentile. Their sins will fill up the wrath of God. And as it has, it is, and it will come upon those that uh, are enemies of his gospel. He's promised us that. And again, to date, he has made good on every single promise, save one that we're waiting for, his return. Therefore, friend, I plead with you. If you are an enemy of the gospel, and by enemy meaning you in some ways obscure it, stopping the spread of it, trying to explain certain pieces of it away. If that's you, friend, I call you in love to repent. Don't do it. The most loving thing I can do for you this morning is to tell you to turn around from that. I would not love you if I said, well, you know, it's just sort of a, uh, we'll just agree to disagree. No, that's not loving. The most loving thing I can do for you is to tell you God's wrath is coming upon you. Turn around from that. God is able to save. His arm is not too short that it cannot save. There's more grace in, there's more grace in him than there is sin in you. He can turn an enemy like you into a saint. Paul, the guy writing this letter, hated God, went door to door killing Christians. Saved him. Now he's writing this letter. He can do that for you. Turn from idols. Cultural idols, personal idols, whatever. Turn to the living God. Ask him to forgive you of the ways that you have uh, deceived others about the gospel, lied about the gospel, stopped the spread of the gospel, and ask God to give you grace. Trust in Jesus to take away all of your sins and know that he can and he will. And again, come talk to us about it so we can help you. Again, every single Christian in the New Testament, when they come to faith in Christ, they get wrapped into a church. And that's what this is. Wide is the gate and easy is the way, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to everlasting life with him. And so, beloved, I speak to you, my church, my beloved church. I thank God for the ways that you receive the word of God as the word of God. 
I thank God for the ways in which either some of you have even been suffering for that gospel in various ways. May we resolve in ourselves to know that it will be hard for us in days ahead. But may we resolve to continue to follow these words because in them is life and everlasting. And Jesus promised us, as we're going to see down here in chapter 3, he told us it was going to be like this. He told us it was going to be hard. And so may we follow him and love him and help each other on till we get home to heaven, knowing all the while that our willingness to suffer for that gospel is reason enough to show that we're receiving the word. And secondly, you can know, you can rest easy that no matter what, you can turn the other cheek, you can walk the extra mile to those that persecute you because God will deal with it. Romans 12, it is not our place to revenge, it's God's place. We'll trust that God will do it in the end. So may we give ourselves to receiving the word, suffering for that word of the gospel, knowing God will make it right in the end. And what a great way to transition into the table. Before I do that, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the word of the gospel that saved wretches like us. Teach us to constantly thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And give us resolve to stand in this gospel if it means we have to suffer for it, just like the other churches for the last 2,000 years and even today. Turn those gospel-hitting people into beloved saints as you did, Paul, and graft them into your church. And Lord, just as Joey prayed earlier, Lord, as we watch nations rage, we lament these realities, Lord, but there's a judgment that is far worse than the one being leveled in the Middle East right now. It's coming. Help that day inform this day that we would be resolved to stay the course showing ourselves authentic Christians not because of our good works or good intellect but because of your saving grace we turn to the table now that reminds of these things be glorified in them we pray in Jesus name Amen